The number one question we get from listeners is, do we have a written step-by-step roadmap to guide you on how to train your dog? We don't, but Standing Stone Supply does. They're the creators of the complete step-by-step dog training program that takes your dog from brand new puppy and gets it well on its way to that finished dog you've always dreamed of. They've mapped out the timelines to help guide you, the videos for every step of the way to show you, and even have the needed gear made into shopping lists to make it easy to supply you. Check out the course at StandingStoneSupply.com to gain unlimited access for all current as well as future lessons and be sure to use the code GDIY to save 10% at sign up. As someone who constantly travels to new locations out of state to hunt, I have to rely on map scouting before I even get in the truck. Onyx Hunt Maps makes it super easy for me to plan out my trips as well as track my success while on the trip. The offline maps along with the tracking feature and ability to add pictures to my waypoints means I can always reference old trips and hunts to better prepare for the next. When planning your next hunt, be sure to use Onyx to put you and your dog in the best situation you can. Use code GDIY20 at checkout to save 20% and know where you stand with Onyx. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. You know, the trainer can can only give you so much. He can he can develop the behaviors, but it's up to you to make sure that uh, that they're refined for you in the field. If you're currently in the market for a kennel, then be sure to check out Gunner Kennels. Gunner Kennels is the only kennel that's five star crash rated from the Center for Pet Safety. The double wall rotomodal construction ensures it holds up in all types of weather and conditions. Also, Gunner Kennels has a lifetime warranty. These kennels are built to last a lifetime, and Gunner stands behind that. Gunner also has all the accessories you could need from fan kits to help keep them cool, performance and orthopedic pads to help keep them comfortable and ready to go after long travels, and even tie-down straps to help ensure there's no worries for the kennel moving or sliding around in your truck. So if you need man's best kennel for man's best friend, head on over to gundogityourself.com and click on the Gunner link. Be sure to purchase your kennel, accessories, and even gift cards for holidays and birthdays through our link, and it will go a long way in helping out the podcast. Welcome back to another week of GDIY. This is Nick and Adam coming at you with a fresh episode on everything gun dogs. Yeah, a lot of uh, <laughs> a lot of learning took place during this episode for me. Uh, Grayson Geyer, he, I mean, just super knowledgeable. Yeah. I actually... I said during the episode that I was going to go back and listen and take notes, and I did. So, you guys and gals, get your uh, notebooks out for this one. Yeah, it's a little bit different of a of an episode. You know, we don't go too hot and heavy on just one topic. We cover a lot of grounds. We cover his Britneys and what got him into hunting and, and the French Britneys. Stuff. French Britneys. Yep. But then uh, we really kind of dive deep into he's a pro trainer, and so some of the some of the common disconnects between him and his clients and, and really just the language of dog training and some of the disconnects that people have one person calling something one, one thing, another calling something and this, the same thing, a different name. And then, yep. and then really we, we get into, you know, the misconception on negative reinforcement and, right. and the people that, that are advocates for only positively training their dogs and, and just a different outlook on, 
on all that. So it really covers a lot of ground and I really enjoyed it because it's, uh, you know, we don't go into that, that much depth very often. Yeah. This one was pretty deep. I definitely enjoyed it too. Uh, it's a great episode. I think you guys are going to like it. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> so enjoy it. And, uh, I mean, we, we really, you know, what, what have you been working on with your dog here lately with all this virus stuff? Have you been, uh, been getting more time with the dog in the yard than normal? Yeah, um, it's still, you know, there's still the challenge of trying to find the time and space to do it. Uh, I'm teleworking, so the time thing is an issue or is remains an issue because even though I'm, I'm not spending as much time driving back and forth to work, there are just other distractions around the house, you know, and if you drive by any Lowe's or Home Depot, it's pretty obvious that everyone's taking care of their projects that have been <laughs> pushed to the side for a while. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm still still working on, I mean, the, the basic obedience is just continuous. Um, yeah. Still doing steadiness and basically keeping duck searches brushed up in preparation for a test at a to-be-determined <laughs> date. Yeah. Uh, doing some some retrieving and line drill stuff, uh, at a place I can go at the end of the street. Um, you know, nothing, nothing spectacular. And there's always just take them out and just go for a walk in the woods, like a hunting scenario or through some fields where they get exercise and burn some jet fuel off. Yeah. And as far as they're concerned, they're hunting. I don't need orange or a gun. They're just, (laughs) They're still looking for birds, man. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. What about you? Kind of same. I, I've been focusing more on yard work and everything. Uh, I'm working from home also, so I've been able to get a few more training reps in that, that I normally wouldn't. And honestly, I feel like I could step it up even more so than what I have been. But but I've been using the opportunity to, to get more sessions in, and I've been kind of incorporating line drills and a lot of place work and and stuff that we really don't work on a whole lot throughout the year and and uh, lucy's coming along really well on the line drill uh rachel is you know flipping me the bird and wanting to get offline so (laughs) it's a whole new challenges but it's it's fun it's something different i haven't done too much line work but we're making strides and kind of what you're talking about this whole virus thing kind of threw us for a loop and and as far as timelines and plans for testing goes so you know we're both planning on trying to ut test again and and all that so we'll kind of see how that plays out and yeah other than that it's just same old same old just a little bit more opportunity for me to do some training sessions out in the yard yeah i'm not sure if the tests are gonna fill up really quick if chapters are gonna have extra tests um Maybe there won't be as many people testing. I don't know. Are you guys all sitting at home not training your dogs right now? And there's and there's not going to be as many people ready because I'm looking at this as an opportunity to be even more ready. Yeah, so I guess I, we I better would do say good. That <laughs> there's probably an element of people that their main opportunity to put their dogs in the field and do some bird work is probably through their chapters. And with the chapters not training right now, maybe they won't be ready for the fall like they were they were planning on. Uh, yeah. But, you know, as far as yard work and, and regular training sessions around the house goes, m- more people have that opportunity. But, you know, maybe that doesn't correlate with being ready for a fall test if, if they haven't had the training opportunities and bird opportunities that they typically would have without this without this pandemic. Yeah. Yeah, I guess we'll see. 
we'll see what happens here in a few months. Hopefully, a couple months rather than a few months. Hopefully, things get back to hopefully to normal pretty yeah, soon. Absolutely. But yeah, in the meantime, I mean, you can definitely do basic obedience. Uh, you really don't need a big facility or grounds to do that stuff. And yeah. it, like we've talked about before, it translates to the to your work uh, in the field and water and everything else. And I've talked to quite a few people, especially after our previous episodes, they're using this time to uh, really start going through force fetch and knocking that out. And so it's really a good time for that. If you, if you're at the point with your dog that what you're ready for is a good time to be doing that. Cause you know, you don't need a field and birds for all that. You just, you're at home doing it anyway, so yeah. it's a good time for that. And if the timing lines up, it's yeah. a great opportunity for something like that for yeah. sure. But uh, I guess that's. I mean, unless you have something specific you wanted to talk about, that's enough jaw jacking from that's us, it, man. And, and uh, you know, we'll get to Grayson and with the usual stuff. Please remember hit that subscribe button, rate, review, share. Let us know feedback, ideas, guest ideas, suggestions, corrections, whatever. Let us know, gundogityourself at gmail.com. Find us on all social media platforms, uh, Patreon. Check that out if you, if you want to throw a few bucks our way. We really appreciate that, especially with the with the time we're in right now. And a lot of people, you know, their financial situations may be changing. But, but yeah, any help goes a long way, and we appreciate it. And without anything else, let's get to Grayson. And you guys enjoy the good vocabulary lesson we get into. Yep, here we go. Enjoy. Do you have trouble physically making it through long hunts? Is your dog always giving you that angry look telling you to keep up? You train your dog, but now it's time to train yourself. Rocky Mountain Hunt Strong is the company for any hunter that is looking for an effective fitness routine to get healthier and be able to hunt longer and harder. This company has merged fitness and the passion of hunting to help people like you and me continue to do what we love. From the Rockies to the Smokies and every field or prairie in between, this company can get you ready to go longer, cover more ground, and recover quicker. Go to RockyMountainHuntStrong.com and see their program for yourself. Use the discount code GDIY to save 15% and get to work. Train harder, hunt stronger, and recover faster. All right, we have Grayson Geyer of Lost Highway Kennels on the line with us. Grayson, how are you doing tonight? Doing great. Thanks for having me on, guys. So start off with the obvious. Tell everybody where you're coming from. Sure. Yeah. I'm, uh, so my name's Grayson Geyer. I'm a professional trainer in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Uh, primarily focus on pointing dogs. Um, I'll take an occasional retriever or, or flushing dog uh, or, a, or a pet dog uh, every once in a while. But most of my time is spent training pointing dogs. And um, I'm lucky to to own uh, and and be able to operate my kennels uh, on a property um, that's that's relatively close to uh, to where I grew up, and it's owned by a <coughs> by a, a you know a, a very nice benefactor of mine, and we operate a small shooting preserve on the property as well. So you know, life's good down here. We've got a we've got a really good setup. That sounds good. Uh, I've got a, a brother that lives in Kernersville, okay, Vegas, right there close to you. And I've been, oh, yeah, man. Yeah, I've been trying to convince him for a couple years to get a bird dog. Uh, he's got four kids that are all under the age of five, so he definitely needs a bird dog. What kind of dogs, sure. what kind of dogs do you raise? 
maybe I can send them your well, way. <laughs> Personally, I'll I'll have an occasional litter. I as a hobbyist, I'm into uh, into French Britneys, um, you know. But I, I recognize that that's kind of uh, an odd little niche to fill, and <laughs> you know, I just there's there's no real rhyme or reason other than you know I I, uh, I happened to get one maybe ten years ago, and you know I there's there's things that I love about them. They're not for everybody, but you know they are for me, and I have a great time with my dogs, and um, I love to train. But you know tell your tell your brother to come hang out sometime, and there's always. There's always a couple of French Britneys running around, but there's usually a couple of white dogs and maybe a bearded dog or two as well. Yeah, so. yeah he'll, he'll probably say, oh, a Brittany, and then we'll get into a conversation about, you know, French Britneys and, uh, <laughs> and, yeah, and what that we can have. Happen. Well, we haven't gotten to talk too much about Britneys. Go ahead and explain to everybody what what was your uh, preferences. What made you go with the Britneys? You said that there are some things you like about them and you don't. What are those? Yeah, and it's kind of hard to to not jump straight into my background story with it, but um, you know, I grew up, uh, you know, really, ha- you know, being enthralled with dogs, but not necessarily being able to be around a lot of dogs. And I had an uncle that um, that still runs a hunting preserve in Bisco, North Carolina. Um, it's Tobacco Stick hunting preserve and his name's <laughs> cj reynolds for anybody out there that's oh, a, nice. a little plug yeah, yeah he's a, and he's a great guy and he really introduced me to bird dogs young and my grandfather uh, had been a, a bird hunter and, and a dog man um but had kind of aged out of that by the time i was old enough to really hang out with him and and, and mess around so uh I, I spent a lot of time watching pointers and setters in the field and um and i got a setter uh, as an as a young adult, right out of the military and in college, and uh, and this dog lived in in a one bedroom apartment with me and a Belgian Malinois, and uh, <laughs> it, it was it was pure chaos, man. So I can imagine. Um, yeah, and you know, and he was it wasn't necessarily the breed, but you know, it's we we tend to stigmatize uh, certain breeds for certain characteristics, and he kind of fit the bill, um, and he, you know. I wish I had a second chance at that, at that dog today. Um, you know, but I learned a lot from him and he taught me all the lessons that, uh, that young people need to learn from big running dogs. And, uh, and so I ended up, you know, as, as I matriculated from college and, and into a normal life, uh, I wanted something that I could run around in the front, you know, the front seat of the truck with me and, um, so I just decided to buy into sweeping generalizations and look up like the perfect companion gun dog. And, and these French Britneys were being sold as just that. And I got one and uh, it was a, it was a very good example of a companion dog and a, and a relatively decent example of a, of a bird dog. Um, you know, but that, that first one, he, he was, he just was a little short on stamina, but I really liked him. So I gave it another shot and I moved him down the road as a, as a pet with a friend of mine. And, um, and I got the, probably the best dog I've ever had in my life. And my current dog, Ella, who is, um, seven years old now and has done very well for me, uh, in the field and, um, and in some competition and she's had three litters for me and we, we love her to death. So, that's kind of how I ended up with the French Britneys. Otherwise, you know, I'm not really a breed specific kind of guy. And I, I tend to 
talk a lot more people out of them than I do into them, <laughs> to be honest with you. So you you started out with an English pointer, right? Uh, in the I, apartment actually, there? I, yeah, I setter. started out with a setter in the apartment. Okay, that, uh, and then you switched, yeah, wide to, open. switched to the French Brittany, and you said you just kind of went like off of the generalizations of having a good hunting dog that was a companion dog. How, how's that been for you in comparison to your big running uh, setter that you started with? You know, I, I think it's really unfair to the setter. I think a lot of it has to do with who I was and where I was in my life. And, um, you know, I've, I've been lucky, but I've also become very selective. You know, I, if I've got a dog that I, I don't like for one reason or another, um, you know, I usually don't hang on to it. I find somebody that will like it and, and treat it really well and, and move it on down the line. And some people might find that a little you know, a little callous, but it's, it's where I am in this stage of my life. So, you know, most of the dogs that, that I have with me, I really, really like, but it's, it's not by chance, you know? So, yeah. So I'm not, I don't know if you even know the answer to this, but I'm just curious, what's the main differences between a French Brittany and an American Brittany? Well, so, you know, there's a man, we could, this is a topic that can, can <laughs> really get out of hand quickly. Um, you know, I think again, there's, there's a lot of generalizations. I tried to steer clear of those. I mean, the real differences that the observable differences are, you know, that what, what we know is the French Brittany in America is, is, um, is really the one that is, uh, is recognized by the FCI. I mean, so the European, you know, group of kennel clubs, uh, and, and it's, and it's the, the standard, the morphological standard for the dog is the same one that's in its home country of France. Um, and so that's, that's really it. I mean, otherwise it's a, it's a bird dog, you right. know, like, uh, like the American Brittany is here. Uh, but the, the morphological standard here is the one that it came with in the, man, I'm going to get this, get this wrong, but you know, somewhere between the thirties and the fifties, <clears throat> things changed. And, uh, and so the AKC standard is is actually the original standard that came with the with the original Britneys being imported into this country, and um, you know there's there's a lot of that there's a lot of hearsay as to why maybe the standard changed in Europe. Some some folks say that it had to do with the Second World War and the depletion of of broodstock in in France, and um, you know. But either way, I think I think. You know, if we're being honest, the, the breed diverged, you know, over a period of, oh, shoot, 60 years, 70 years to where we are today from when it was was first coming in on both sides of the pond. So, you know, I think they've changed in Europe and I think they've changed in, in the United States, you know, to kind of meet the requirements of, of, our, of our relative cultures. So, you know, over there, they, they trial on foot. They have some unique and interesting things but they don't necessarily want you know a bootlicker either they they like big running dogs over there they just trial different you know and they they use a, a lot of cut beet and cut wheat fields where you can just see forever and the dogs are expected to quarter really nicely and they may make big old you know 300 400 yard casts um with their noses in the wind but it's a it's just a different aesthetic and a, and and something you know, that produces a different type of dog through a system. So, right. Um, yeah. So I haven't, I actually have not been around that many Britneys. I've been around a few of them, so I'm not a hundred percent familiar with them, but, but you, you just talked about some kind of their, 
field tendencies and where they came from. How are they inside the house? Do they have a nice little off switch with them? So the one that lives in the house with me does, um, you know, and, and I've, and I would say, yeah, I mean, if, you know, it's a, I, you know, the, the line I always use is that I believe personally that there's a lot more variation within breeds than there is amongst them. So I think if I really went out and was looking for it, if I looked for the right breeding, I could find the perfect setter to be in the house, you know, and the same would hold true for, for any other breed. And so, right. you know, I think there are French Britneys that are, they're not, it, you know, we, we want them to have an off switch. The idea is they, that they do, but you know, a lot of us are out here breeding for performance too. And, um, you know, and that perfect temperament may not be at the top of the list. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I think as a generalization, you know, the hope is if you get a French Brittany, you get that good all around companion gun dog that, uh, that can make it in the house and be, be that cab of the truck dog with you. Um, you know, but that doesn't always hold up and it still pays to do your research and really spend the time with the individual dogs and, and the breeders. Yeah. I think before you, what you were saying about that trigger, it really depends on what people are breeding for. Uh, because there's, you know, short hairs get a bad rap about being crazy, and and a lot of them <laughs> yeah. are. Mine's pretty crazy sometimes, <laughs> but he's also pretty good in the house too. If he's had a lot of exercise, right? So, um, you can find you can find dogs within the breed that are good in the house. Um, just like you could find a dog that's generalized as being good in the house that could be really crazy in the house too. So. I think for it's sure. important to see what people are breeding for. Um, do you get into any AKC stuff or uh, NAFTA, any any of those venues at all? Or does that affect like your breeding and stuff? So, so I'm just actually just getting into NAFTA, and there's a contingent within um, the the French Brittany community uh, that, that's into it. You know, I've I've never been against it, and one thing I really like about the French Brittanies is there's there's a you know the 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 French name is the, or what, what they're called in the native tongue is Espanol Breton, and and so they kept the spaniel, and uh, you know, and and a spaniel's a little more of a they're not the versatile pointing dog the way we think of the German breeds, um, you know, but I think of it as a as a little more versatile dog, <clears throat> and and one that has a little more retrieve than your average pointer. And so I, I thought it would be fun to kind of dabble in NAVDA and then I got into it and then goodness gracious, man, it's a, it's a, uh, a, a very easy thing to be become obsessed with. Right? I was going to so, say, man, if you're, <laughs> if you're getting into NAVDA, I don't really see yeah. you getting out of NAVDA. I mean, it's yeah, not, it's no. not like a cult or anything, but it's just such a great environment. I always tell people that getting together for a training day or a test, it's kind of like a family reunion, but yeah. with all I mean, sure, you have your your uh, your differences with people in an AVDA chapter, but just like you do with a family, but everyone's focused on training dogs, versatile dogs. It's just a really great organization. Um, sure. How big do these dogs get? I'm just imagining it going out on a duck search and retrieving a duck <laughs> that's the same size as it. <laughs> <laughs> they, yeah, I, I would say, yeah. I mean, you know, expect them. The idea is that they are you know, the, the smallest of all the pointing breeds. Right. And the, and that's another one that the, the French kind of hold, hold true to, or the Europeans, you know, where I think that's, that's something that is probably less important, um, 
in America with the with the American Britneys, and not, no better, no worse, just just not as as high on the list of criteria. Um, you know, and, and again, I'm kind of embarrassing myself here as, as somebody that's supposed to be a breeder and, and an enthusiast. <laughs> I don't, I don't have the standard memorized, um, you know, but my female is, is 35 pounds and I'd say she's, uh, she's a solid, you know, kind of not heavy in, in regards to her weight, but she's a, she's a, a dense dog, you it know? Counts. So I would say with your, with your females, you know, she's probably on the higher end, but the males, you, you'll see them up to 40 pounds, but usually somewhere between 25 and 40 pounds and no, 25 a, being that's on the smaller That's a nice size end. dog. I think Nick just said your dog had thick thighs. Is that what you said? She's a thick house. Man. <laughs> oh, thick house. <laughs> you said thick thighs. Thick house. Yeah, I'm learning, man. I hear a lot. <laughs> Um, that's, a that's a nice tossed around. Yeah. That's a nice size dog though. Um, that's yeah, my preferred yeah. size in dogs. Yeah. I mean, like I, 35 pounds is, is really nice size. I think. Yeah. I've got a yeah, real small, yeah, short, efficient. Yeah. I've got a real small short hair and then my small Muncie, they're both in that, that kind of 35 to 40 pound range. And man, yep. it's, it's nice as far as traveling, feeding medicine, whatever. It just, I mean, I grew up with bigger dogs, but that smaller size dog, I've, it's nice. I enjoy it. Space on the couch, you know, do you, do you let your dogs up on the couch with you or are they kennel oh, dogs? Oh gosh, man. Yeah. Anything <laughs> in my house. Right. So there's two, two full-time residents in the house and one's, one's a, a French Brittany. The other is a, <clears throat> is a, uh, West Highland Terrier that's like 10 years old and just runs everything. Right. And he just don't so lose it's, the place. yeah, they both. Yeah. <laughs> I'm lucky if I get room on the couch or, or, yeah. or in the bed. So well, Grayson, I think that we have a, a unique perspective that we can address with you as as far as you being a pro trainer, and obviously we're we're DIY guys, and probably the vast majority of the people that listen to us are more of your DIY guys, is trying to figure it out and lo- learn those lessons that you learned with your setter way back when. Sure. Uh, as a pro trainer, what would you say is usually the the most common issues that that you have to address and try and help the the handlers and owners out with i you know i think um you know personally something that's become kind of uh uh, of my you know flagship issue is um it's just everybody they're trying to get other folks on the same page in in regards to the vernacular we use um so mostly the way we talk about dog training. And I think there's so, you know, at the end of the day, man, training a point and dog, you know, if we're, if we take the water workout and the retrieving workout, training a point and dog is super, super simple, you know? And, um, I, I often share this anecdote. Anybody that's spoken to me before has probably heard the story that, um, you know, when I left my, my former career, which was as a professional dog trainer, just working for someone else and started my own business, uh, my grandfather was still living or, or when I was planning this, he was still living and, uh, he had his major influence on me. And so, um, I told him I was getting ready to, to start my own business and I was going to train dogs. And he asked what type. And I said, you know, bird dogs. And he said, that's the dumbest shit I ever heard in my life. <laughs> and he's like, <laughs> he's like, you turn them out and, uh, and they're either a bird dog or they ain't. And there's a lot of truth to that, yeah, you know, sure. still today, just don't you know, screw and, it up. Yeah, yeah. People you know, keep really you in business stay, because they screw it up, and then they bring you the dog, a lot and, of times. and then you fix it. 
a lot of times that's true, man. And, you know, a lot of times, you know, and, and I'm a very early on, you know, whether it be a puppy or whether it be a, an, an older dog that just hasn't had the opportunity opportunity to develop naturally. Um, I think it's really important to just put those dogs on the ground and let them find out who they are before we start trying to manipulate them too much. Do you find yourself you know, and, getting a lot of problems? Because we, I don't want to say we bash pro trainers. We're not bashing you on the podcast, but sure, sure. we try to get across to people that you don't have to have a pro trainer to do this. You can do it yourself. And, you know, here's some tips to not screw it up. Do you find yourself just fixing problems all the time? I, yeah, I wouldn't say all the time. You know, they're there. And, you know, I think, you know, I think really what separates you know, a pro from, from an amateur, you know, and, and I'll be honest with you too, man. I mean, some of the best dog trainers I've ever known in my life are, you know, plumbers and attorneys and, you know, right. but they're just hardcore hobbyists. And that's how I started, you yeah. know, and, um, and, and in a lot of ways, man, you know, I, I, you, you know, you lose something trying to become super efficient as a professional, right? Cause people, you know, they're paying me, to, to make their dog the best dog it can be, but to do it in a certain amount of time and, yeah. and to, you know, not, not just drag them along and spend all their money. Right. So they um, gotta be you impressed know, when they come pick their dog up. Like yeah, they need boy, to they be sure wild like to be, a little bit. Sure. Right? <laughs> that's, uh, that's always the case, you know, and it's important. I mean, I think it's important as a professional for, for anybody considering that or any, any others out there listening to, to be results oriented, you know, and, and to know, you know, what you're worth, but also, you know, what you're not worth, you know? And, and so it's, it's important to, to, to give your clients what they pay for. And, um, and it's not always easy because not every dog is the same, you know, we always hear that. And, yeah, you know, some sure. dogs come in and they, they are, man, they're, they're ready to go. And I can, you know, just basically stay out of their way and they're going to look great. And, and whatever period of time their owners want them to be you know, look good by, and then other dogs, you know, we're out here, man, and I've got like two weeks and I'm calling the, the owner and I'm saying, look, you know, I'm going to need more time. And you know, let me cut you a deal just because I don't want to send this dog home unprepared, you know? And, and yeah. so it's, it's, it's not a, you know, it's, I'm, it's my dream job. I'm glad I had it, but man, it's a job, you know, it's work. And, and, um, and, you, and I think you, you better deliver on your promises. Absolutely. So, so I want to backtrack to what you kind of started that out with, with one of sure. your, your main, um, or common, uh, topics of discussion with your clients is really the vernacular of dog training. What do you mean by that? Is it just a language barrier or just a disconnect between your average handler and their dog? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, especially in, in hunting dogs in general, I see it, you know, I've, I've been lucky enough to spend a lot of time around retriever guys, um, some very high level professional retriever trainers and, um, you know, and, and I got my start in the, in police dogs. Uh, so out of college and after the service, um, that that's the career path I chose. And, uh, over there in, in, police dogs and protection sports, you know, things like Schutzen, where you, you talk about dogs like Malinois and German Shepherds and you know, people that play those games at the highest level, they've kind of evolved in a separate tradition and they, they spend a lot more time discussing behavior uh, technically than we do with our hunting dogs. And, and, and what I found, uh, what, and I'll, I, if you guys don't mind, 
I'll kind of take it in a, in a little different direction. But as I transitioned, yeah, what, yeah, what happened is, you know, I'd always been a hunting dog enthusiast. I'd always been a, a bird hunter and at least kind of uh, admired bird dog guys and retriever guys from afar, but was, was really immersed in, in the, in the police dog world and in the protection sports world. Um, and so after college, uh, and after a little bit of time in other, you know, careers that required a, a suit and tie, I, I got a job, you know, at, at, because of my military experience, um, with, with a company that was contracting to the Marine Corps training bomb dogs. And, uh, and it was a really unique experience because it was bringing a lot of different people together from, from, uh, various backgrounds. Um, but most of the p- trainers on that contract with this specific company were, were retriever trainers. And, and there were some super, super, uh, high level pros. Um, the guy that I went to work with, that was my, my immediate supervisor when I first got there was Mike Lardy's. Um, longtime assistant trainer, uh, a man by the name of Ben Vallon, and he was just fantastic. And he was very heady, and he could um, he could really kind of talk the talk in regards to behavior. But that wasn't the norm with the retriever guys. It was more like, hey, this is the way it is because this is the way it's done. It's the way it's always been done. And uh, and I it just never it never set well with me. And so we'd have these big conversations. Um, you know, about training issues we were having, you know, and, and we have this kind of collective, uh, you know, conversation every Friday and it was fantastic. And you were bringing a lot of, a lot of, you know, man, there were like 120 professional trainers working at this place. And we'd have these, you know, great conversations that were sometimes knocked down drag outs, but sometimes very productive. Um, yeah, but it was, I'm, for I'm me, very familiar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and so it was, uh, but it was, it was great. And, and we were bringing these two worlds together and, and I, and I got really into training this type of dog, which we were training a, what was then called an IDD, which was an improvised explosive detection dog. And they handled like a, like a, you might handle a, a, a hunt test or a field trial retriever. Um, and instead of retrieving ducks or bumpers, we, we taught them to indicate on explosive odors when they, when they encountered them. Um, but yeah. And so we, you know, if guys, you know, Marines were out patrolling across Afghanistan and, uh, and they saw something suspicious, they could line the dog up, send it over there. And if it was a bomb, the dog would indicate. Right. And so it was fantastic. It saved a lot of lives. It was a great program. It was huge. We had, uh, like 747 dogs in that program at, at its peak. Um, and so, uh, you know, I and I get, getting to work with these these very high level trainers, we you know they were we were talking about things like force fetch, which comes up all the time, right? And so for me, I didn't come from a tradition of training where that was was the norm, but I, I was trying to understand what they were talking about. So I was thinking in terms of um, operant conditioning and and using terms like negative reinforcement and that wasn't very well received, right? Like I was the poindexter in the room kind of getting laughed at and stuff. Cause I was trying to try to talk like that. But the more I sat around, the more I realized like, Hey man, we can all, we can all meet in this place with this vernacular. We, you know, we can, we can talk about the same thing. So regardless of what method or what tradition of training we come from, if, if we choose to acknowledge that, there's a language that exists, a vocabulary that exists for us to to discuss these these topics and 
you know, we can all kind of be, meet on the same page and, and learn more from each other. And so, you know, to me that that is in what a lot of people call behaviorism, right? So, you know, made, you know, operant conditioning made popular by um, D.F. Skinner, uh, classical conditioning, which is Pavlov and, you know, some other, other things, drive reduction theory, which was Clark Hull and um, instrumental learning, which is really the predecessor of operant conditioning, which was uh, John Watson. So all this stuff's out there, there, you know, and you can read it and learn it and and beat it into your head. And when people start throwing around terms like positive and negative and reinforcement and punishment, now you go, okay, I, I know what people are talking about. And then you start really seeing things come to light when you start talking about things like force fetch, where there's all this woo, right? And like magic mm-hmm. around it, especially when you're getting started, you know, getting started and it's so scary. Um, you know, so to me, that that's really important. And I, and I would suggest that anyone that's really getting serious about dog training, you know, learn these concepts and then try to start thinking of these methods that you're consuming uh, and learning from others in, in these terms and finding where they fall. And, and it clears a lot of stuff up for a lot of people, you know, for me, for sure. Right. And, and in the world of dog training is... It, there's there's so many different examples of one person saying one thing and then another person taking issue with it and they're really talking about the same thing it's just kind of semantics about a specific word used and and the the example i use all the time and i've said it on the podcast before it's kind of like when you're dealing with steadiness if you have somebody brand new to it they tend to understand the terms as when you speak to it as steady to something. And then experienced guys or, or judges, maybe they understand it as steady through something. And it's, it's really it, what you're asking the dog to do isn't different. It's just how people perceive it and, and understand it in their own heads. Yeah. hundred, hundred percent. I mean, it's, yeah, I, and I judge a lot. So I, you know, I, I forgot to mention this, but I, you know, our breed club is run through the UKC and we have our own trial system that's based on the field trials in, in okay. Europe. And yeah. And so it's, it's super small, you know, it's, it's not a big deal, but I think it's a lot of fun. It's all on foot and there's no horses, but it is competitive. Right. And so, yeah. um, you know, it's, it may be, maybe something to plug, but, but in judging that and, and spending a lot of time around, it's a super, when you're judging field trials, it's very subjective and you get, especially when you get, you know, participants that are, that have been around a long time and they're really savvy, they can, they can manipulate judges, you know, and a lot of that is built around the words we use, you know, and the, and the, so great things like the test programs like NAVDA, you know, it's objective, but when you bring you know, first place, second place, third place in there, that subjectivity sneaks in. It's about, becomes more about style or, you know, or uh, like you said, what, you know, is it steady to flush, steady through flush, you know, steady through the shot and fall, whatever, you know, um, if, if, you know, a lot of feelings get hurt out there on the trial field. So it pays to (laughs) know what you're talking about, you know, and, and what, and more importantly, what the judge is talking about, you know, so, for sure. Uh, yeah, and and there there's so many examples. I mean, obviously I just picked out the steadiness one, but there there really is and and it it's really just a barrier when you're trying to help somebody through something or when you're trying to get advice. You you can't even get on the same page with somebody until you you kind of have uh, you're on the same page as far as the definitions of what you're talking about. And, and I mean, another one would be like honoring. A, a lot of people consider pointing dogs an honor is 
honoring the other one's point. And then the retriever world, it's honoring the retrieve. And then you can, you know, I've had people get mad at me and say, that's not an honor. That's a back. And it's, you kind of, you get so (laughs) bogged down in arguing semantics about the definitions of stuff. And it's like, look, let's just try and get on the same page here and talk about what's actually important in, in the entire scenario in the field or what we're working on instead of arguing about what a word means. Oh, for sure. For sure. I mean, the one, I'll be honest, man, the, the one that drives me the most crazy is, is positive, right? Like you hear it, you know, all the time in regards to training now. And especially now that we live in a world where, you know, it's a, uh, it's posh to, you know, to see yourself as like the person that doesn't use any force in training yep, yep. or, you know, you're the humanitarian or, you know, but a lot, you know, there's, a, it's just a lot of misinformation around it. And, and, you know, the word positive, it, you know, it's, 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 it's used as if we're talking about uh, behavior and positive reinforcement and negative reinforcement things. But in that context, the word positive simply means I'm adding something to the equation, right? And negative simply means I'm removing something. And, and so we, we attribute, you know, um, all this emotional value to this word positive. Uh, it means happy, right? And it means we're good trainers and not bad trainers like the negative trainers who are jerks, you know, but yeah. it's, that's not what it is. Right. It's, and it's, it's a complete, um, you know, misuse of the, of, of the word. And then, it, and it leads to m- the misuse of a lot of terms, which in, in, you know, uh, in turn just really muddies the water. So, well, and that, that kind of goes right into what you're talking about with force fetch, just the word force kind of triggers a lot of people to automatically assume, Oh, I'm not going to be mean to my dog. And the words, words naturally issue, an emotional response from people, no matter who you are. And some people can kind of recognize that better than others. And just, just the word positive and the word negative emits immediate reactions from people. And so they automatically assume if you use the word negative, that I don't want to do that at all, but you say positive. Oh yeah, I'll do that. And it's just like, they won't even explore the possibility of doing what is considered negative reinforcement even though it's maybe something as simple as just you know a verbal reprimand and it's really not negative per se it's just reinforcement yeah i mean yeah it's you know and and again it's kind of like you you look at all these methods you know and i mean i i still there's there's a part of me that doesn't like to feel like somebody else's interpretation of what I'm saying is driving the words I use. So I still, you know, most often I'm using, I use the term force fetch. I use the term broke to describe a steady, you know, and staunch dog. Um, but that's because I'm kind of, I just, it, it just triggers a, to feel like I'm being, you know, pushed into a corner culturally makes me feel bad. Right. So, you know, I still use those and I, and I want to be transparent and honest about what I'm talking about. And, you know, when we talk, about positive punishment or negative reinforcement where, you know, the great majority of the time we're talking about the application of, of pain, you know, and, and that's okay. Or, you know, most times it's discomfort, you know, but at the very, at the very least we're making the dog avoid something or escape something that's, that it doesn't like in order to, to, to develop a behavior we want. That's, that's okay. That's life, right? That's, we all endure that every day. If we didn't, 
um, we would do a lot of bad things. We'd hurt ourselves, right? Absolutely. So this and, is how we learn. So I, I feel like with when we talk about negative reinforcement training, I really think sure. about escaping something. I'm providing some pressure to the dog, so and yep. it has to learn to turn that pressure off. It learns what, what makes it go off. It it kind of bothers me when, when people say, well, I'm only going to train my dog with positive reinforcement. You know, are you only going to raise your kids and tell them good job and never tell them that they did something bad? The difference with humans and dogs is, you know, our our kids, if you want to raise your kids that way, are still going to learn things through negative reinforcement, whether you provide it to them or not. If they touch something that's hot, they learn from it and they're like, I'm not going to touch that again. I don't think a dog, you know touches something that's hot necessarily and goes, Ooh, I'm never going to do that again. We kind of have to create those scenarios for them. Am I, am I way off the mark in your opinion? No. I mean, the most patently unfair thing we can do, you know, to our dog and I'm sure our kids, you know, and I'm, I'm a new father. So this is, you know, that's, that's, I'm learning that as I go too. Right. But, uh, um, you know, is to, is to not provide them with some sort of external structure. And so when, you know, every time we interact with, any other organism, you know, but, but most importantly, when we think of it as our dog, there's a, there's feedback going on. We have a feedback loop, right? So if I'm, if I'm not conditioning that dog's behavior, that dog's conditioning my behavior. Yeah. And, and, And so the simple act of putting a leash on a dog, you know, could be, and, and especially if I'm, if I'm requiring that dog not walk with a tight lead, which is maybe a stretch for some, right. But that's, I can't, that doesn't happen without a little bit of an application of negative reinforcement or positive punishment, right? I mean, there's, when, uh, you know, and there's a, because we're talking about the language to describe this, it's, it's, you know, the language of operant conditioning. It's super, super simple, but it's not always easy to comprehend. Um, but you're, you know, whether you want to or not, we exist in that all the time. This is not something that somebody, namely, you know, yeah. Skinner, he didn't invent that. He just he just kind of uncovered it for the world. It's always been there. It's always been, you know, responsible for for how we interact with our environment, and that's really what behavior is. You know, you you see a lot of little seven eight pound dogs that are horrible. They're they pull the leash. They're they're the boss when you go to their house, and I think the reason for that is. The owner never gets frustrated enough to yank the leash back and go, that's enough because it's a little seven pound dog. So, I mean, they can go through life and that's not a big deal. But when you've got a 35 pound dog, whether the person says I'm going to use negative reinforcement or not, they end up doing it because they, they say, I can't walk my dog if it's pulling me down the street. So they end up giving it a correction. And yeah, hundred percent. With that, it's kind of like when you talk to people that's that's the hundred percent positive uh, advocate. It's it's kind of like they associate ne- negative reinforcement as abuse to the dog. It, it, it's never well, you're just being mean. It's you're abusing the dog. And really, I look at it as you you said the key word in my opinion a minute ago is is avoidance. And so negative reinforcement is really just avoidance training. The dog is going to learn with a certain amount of pressure what to turn that off. And then they learn how to avoid that pressure altogether. 
And, 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 you know, we're not talking about, yeah, if you're the guy that, you know, slams your dog on the ground and beats the mess out of him because he's not doing what you want. Yeah, that's abuse. But just reinforcing expectations consistently is not abuse. It's just, hey, I'm, I'm going to reinforce and discourage the bad and encourage the good. And so you also said said another phrase that I liked. You you said what what was it? Positive um uh, correction or positive uh what what you just said it a minute ago. Yeah, so probably positive punishment is there what you're thinking That's of. And, it. and and so, you know, and this is it. If we if we speak in the and this is what it really boils down to. And so if we think, you know, if we say, okay, we're gonna use operant conditioning to meet, you know, to have a place to meet to dis- to discuss training. You know, and this we it's it's a it's simple. There's four terms and and there's four words that make up those four terms. And one is positive, the other is negative. Um, one is reinforcement and the other one is punishment. And so positive only ever means in this context that I'm adding something. I'm giving something. Negative only means that I'm removing something or that I'm taking something away. Reinforcement only means that I'm making a behavior more likely to occur in the future. And punishment only means that I'm making a behavior less likely to occur in the future. We take all the emotion out, you know, whether, whether it exists or it doesn't, um, you know, and so I have, I can have positive reinforcement or I can have positive punishment, but in both cases I'm adding something. And so this is really counterintuitive and it's hard for people to hear. And this is one of the reasons it's a hard concept to grasp is you know, positive reinforcement is simple. I'm adding something to the equation, almost always food or prey reward to make a behavior more likely to occur in the future, the reinforcement side. Um, with positive punishment, I'm adding something. It's almost always pain to make a behavior less likely to occur in the future. Um, and so people hear the term positive punishment and it just sends them into a tizzy, right? But it's a, it's a real term and it's been used for a long time to describe behavior in all organisms. And so it's not, you know, there's no emotive value. It's positive. Positive doesn't mean happy. Positive simply means I'm adding something, you know. And so when it's positive uh, or when it's negative punishment, it means I'm removing something. And it's actually the the happy side of punishment, right? So it's, you know, when you came home with bad grades and your parents took your TV out of your room or whatever, you know, that's positive punishment, you know. They're, they're removing something from the equation to make a behavior less likely to occur in the future. I mean, and, you know, whatever it was that was causing your bad grades, um, you know, and then we have positive or uh, n- negative reinforcement, meaning I'm removing something, almost always pain to make a behavior more likely to occur in the future. And so force fetch is my favorite example, right? It's a very refined behavior, Um uh, that that we you know the the catalyst for the behavior is is the discomfort or the pain and and we create the cue for that later being the word fetch but it starts with hey you know we can hold condition without any pressure but the the, the learning in the negative reinforcement starts you know the moment we begin to show the dog that hey when this thing's not in its mouth it becomes uncomfortable and when it gets it in its mouth quickly it quickly becomes much more comfortable and and we end up towing a line between negative reinforcement and 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 negative or I mean negative reinforcement and positive reinforcement oftentimes because we give value to this bumper or whatever object we're using that it didn't have before. Now it is not only a prey reward, it's a safe haven from pressure. 
And and so, you know, even though we can describe things in these operant quadrants, you know, of positive reinforcement, negative reinforcement, positive punishment, negative punishment, it doesn't mean we're stuck in each individual quadrant. If you're training, you're always fluidly moving between each one, you know, and that's that's the art is knowing, trying to figure out where you are and how to freeform your way to the next place. And that that makes a hundred percent sense to me, and, and and I loved everything you just said. So, so put it in a perspective of your average client that walks through the door and says, "Hey, my dog is messing up X, Y, and Z." Yeah, mm-hmm. I, obviously, I, I don't I don't think that you're going to sit down and give the vocabulary lesson that you just did to every one of your clients that comes through the door. <laughs> But what would you say? A lot of my clients wish I did. (laughs) (laughs) Well, walk us through, like, what, what do you, in your opinion and, and just your personal experience, what would you say is the most common disconnect between people and their dogs that comes through your door? Does one kind of outshine over the others when it comes to this discussion? Well, you know, I think, you know, I think you need to be, if you're, and I, like, I mean, I like, you know, it pays to be honest with people, you know, and, and I think one problem that every, I don't know a single pro that, that does not encounter this. And, and I think any one of them that's being honest with you will tell you it's a, it's a, probably the, the biggest problem we face is clients that bring a dog to us and they, and they want to drop it off and they don't want to know anything. They don't want to learn. They want the dog to learn. And then they want to come and they want to pick up their robot at the end of the day that works without thought <laughs> for it, from them, right? And it doesn't it doesn't work that way. You know, there's no such thing as a good dog without a decent handler. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't exist. And so, you know, each each you know, it starts with me trying to convince the client that hey, we're all in this together. You know, and, and and things that work for me is like, let's take this in small chunks. I want to see your dog, if you know, perfect world, you're going to bring me, you're going to call me with your eight-week-old puppy. We're going to talk about maybe bringing it in, you know, after 12 weeks and maybe, you know, within 16 and let's do a bird and gun intro and let's let, you know, this dog be a, just a wide open little um, son of a gun and I hand it back to you. You know, in late spring, you take it home in the summer, and hopefully in fall, you can throw a shoulder, gun over your shoulder and, and, and step into the field with it and understand that, hey, it's not a finished product, but you are, through hunting, you're going to develop the criteria to make this a good started dog. You're going to do like we talked about. You're going to, you know, we know it's not gun shy. We know it has a desire for birds. We know it wants to hunt, um, which is, you know, what's required. So I'm just helping you. Give, bring out what's natural in the dog. You take it that first season, go have a ball, make all the mistakes you can make. Take all, don't have a lot of pressure on yourself with this young dog. And then in the springtime, let's revisit this and talk about, okay, what did you learn having a gun dog? And, and now what are your objectives? How into this are you? Because we can make your weekend warrior couch potato, you know, that isn't, you don't need the best dog in the world, but I can get it staunch for you. And, and we can focus maybe on a little more pet obedience or, Hey man, you're, you're ready to, to start field trial and, and we're going to break this dog out, you know, or, or over the next two or three years. Um, and maybe take, you know, you've got your sight set on a VC or, you know, you, you know, whatever. And maybe this, this dog's talented enough for that. So, um, you know, it's, it's all across the spectrum, but what I really want people to do is manage their expectations and know what's expected of them. If they want 
a quality dog. And that's regardless of whether they're getting a retriever, a pointing dog, a flusher, or a pet. It's all the same. What you put in is what you get out. And, you know, the trainer can can only give you so much. He can he can develop the behaviors, but it's up to you to make sure that uh, that they're refined for you in the field when you want them. So can you kind of tell when when a client walks in with a dog and pretty quickly into it, you can tell what the dog genetically has, what it's naturally inherited. Are you then able to look at the client and go, Oh yeah, this guy or girl is going to do really good with this dog and they're going to put in the effort or you're like, yep, this is going to be a failure. Can you tell that pretty quick? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think most things are, it's a spectrum, right? So, you know, like most things exist somewhere around the top of the curve, you know, and, and yeah, every once in a while you get that super client with that super dog. Um, sometimes you get that super client with a, with a dud and it breaks your heart, you know, because you got to be honest with that guy that really wants that dog to be the best or or girl that wants that dog to be the best dog in the world. And, and they just don't have the DNA for it. Um, you know, but most times you get, you know, clients that are willing to play ball with you. Uh, and, and dogs that are on the spectrum, you know, I mean, the, you know, those, those top end dogs are hard to come by and those, uh, top end clients are hard to come by, but usually it's something you can work with. And so, you know, I, do, I just do my best to try it, to be fair and honest. And, and, you know, I probably talk too much and I probably talk myself out of a lot of things, you know, and my clients out of a lot of business, but, uh, you know, at the, at the same time, I think the clients that when we achieve, when we get to that place where things are coming together, you know, I've, I've almost vetted folks out, you know, a lot of folks will come in for that first time and when they learn what's expected of them, you know, and in their first hunting season, they're not interested in taking it to that next level they thought they wanted, you know, but when you do get that client that comes back in, in the spring of the following year and then start spending time with you day training, you know, and, and going to the NAVDA club, um, you know, and, and learning on their own. And now you're, you know, you're helping them refine behaviors. You know, I can, I can step out with the dog and, and get them green broke. When, when the dog is ready, they, they can get, you know, they can learn the behavior, but to really make that a, an establish that behavior, establish that level of staunchness and steadiness required of a finished dog. And that's, that just, that's a million reps some of them are going to be great. Some of them are going to be terrible, but the idea is we find that baseline and that general trend and we try to move up, but it, it never ends. You know, training is never over when the dog is, is, you know, is at the end of life, they're still out there and you're still keeping them on a, on a balance, you know, on the edge. And so, you know, I think if being honest, there's somewhere around three years old where dogs are capable of becoming who they are going to be. Um, and then the, keeping them on, on that edge for the, for the rest of their working life is, is, uh, is the owner and the trainer's responsibility. And, you know, some of us are better at it and, and more disciplined with it than others. And I'm, believe me, my own dogs suffer often. <laughs> well, I mean, that's, that's essentially, I, I kind of try and explain that to the same people that always, that if they come to me and say, Hey, I'm going to go to a pro trainer. I'm like, okay, well you do realize that you're still going to have to do some training and, and at least just some management and maintenance during the off season. You're not going to be able to just go drop the dog off one time, 
get it back, and then you're done training for the rest of its life. You still have to know kind of what to do unless you plan on taking it back every year right before hunting season. And and some people get it, and then others, they just start taking the dog back to the same trainer every year, just just sure. like clockwork. Sure. And 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 some are some are happy with that, and that's cool. Like if it works for them, you know. And and some dogs will hold up. You know, some, most won't hold up without a trainer or yeah. without a handler that, that knows what they're doing. But but some will to a degree. And then some people are just happy to spend the money and not put the thought into it. But most most successful people put the put the effort in with you. Well, Grayson, th- this has been awesome. I- I've loved this episode with with just the vocabulary and just insight from a pro trainer and and trying to communicate to DIY trainers and everything. And I appreciate you coming on and talking to us. Is there before we get off of here? Is there anything else you want to touch on or or maybe plug for your training or or anything else you have going on right now? Um, you know, mostly just thanks to you guys for having me on. It was a lot of fun and. Anybody out there, um, you know, that's considering getting into this, I would just say consume everything, you know, and don't discount anything. And you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of voices out there telling you never do this and never do that. You know, make your own decisions, but expose yourself to everything. And you know, if you if you're willing to listen to me a little bit, you know, pick up those pick up those books on behaviorism and 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 put the time and effort in there. And that. That little bit of work up front there is going to clear a lot of things up for you in the long run. So that's the, you know, the parting words I have. Yeah, that's great advice, I think. And you've had really great uh, advice throughout the whole thing. I'm probably going to just re-listen to this within the next 24 hours and have a notebook handy so I can (laughs) take notes. Nick Nick said he got 100% of it. I got like 85%. I'm a little bit slower, I think. Uh, So... I'm going to go back and take notes and I might even give you a shout. <laughs> well, and, and I guess it, a quick plug as uncomfortable as it is, anybody that wants to, to visit my website at, um, lost kennels.com. There's a, uh, a learning center button on that. And there's some articles I've written. Um, you guys, and anybody out there that's got questions about this, feel free to email me. Uh, I will try to get back to you. I'm, not, I'm my phone is my primary, means of of communication and i don't get a lot of keyboard time so email's tough especially long form but i'm always happy to chat dogs and and try to point people in the right direction for you know whatever it is they're looking for out there for sure awesome again i enjoyed it and i appreciate it and i'm sure that we'll have you on again at some point down the road and and uh have a great night grayson thanks guys take care guys Thank you for listening to GDIY. If you enjoy this podcast, please remember to take a moment to rate, review, and share with a friend. Also, be sure to follow us and our partners on Facebook and Instagram under Gundog It Yourself. If you really enjoy the podcast and would like to contribute even more to the future content, please check out our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Gundog It Yourself. Thanks again and happy hunting. Everyone seems to have the same questions or concerns when they start trying to decide which kennel to purchase for their vehicle. Perhaps it's time to stop asking all the questions and just design the perfect setup that meets your exact needs. B-Pro Kennel specializes in designing and fabricating custom premier dog boxes handcrafted right here in the USA from high-grade, lightweight aluminum. They'll get you set up with the size dimensions, lighting, storage, battery boxes with solar charging, and anything else you can dream of. Stop stressing over buying the wrong setup just after replace it again and year go ahead and check out bprokennels.com and get exactly what you want
If you're considering changing your dog's food soon, then be sure to check out Yukonuba Pro Performance. Their science-backed formulas are designed to take your dog to the next level of performance. They also now have the new puppy formula to help your pup start strong and live active. When looking at all the different food options, remember Yukonuba to help power their ultimate performance. Hey, what's going on, everybody? It's Bob from Lone Duck's Gun Dog Chronicles podcast. I hope you just enjoyed the episode you just listened to. And if you did, I think you'll enjoy hopping on ours. We've got professional retriever trainers and upland bird dog trainers from across the country and world sharing their tips and tricks and great stories to help you and your dog get ready for the season. We'll see you there.